This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome back to the Money Markets podcast. On that day that the UK market went boom. So we've certainly seen some really big movements with UK midcaps and they enjoyed the strongest daily movement since February. And to tell us why it's happened, here's Danny Hewson. Yes, Dan, it is all down to the latest UK inflation data, which has come in way cooler than just about everybody, well, except the Bank of England, was expecting. Of course, that is then having a knock-on to expectations of where interest rates are going to top out and how far they'll rise next month. Now, if you look stateside, earnings season is in full swing. And we'll be taking a look at how those big US banks like Bank of America have been performing and what else has been moving on the market. One of the things that is moving markets is a Hollywood strike, which has seen actors join writers on the picket line for the first time in 60 years. And that has sent some film-related stocks, including Paramount, Disney and Warner Brothers, down but not Netflix, which reports earnings later today. Tom Selby is back on the show to talk about more of those pension changes. And this week, he'll be focusing on the issue of small pension pots. And as if that wasn't enough, Dan talks to Joe Baumfreund from AVI Global Trust about what he makes of this year's market movements and where he sees opportunities right now. So, Danny, so I think we should kick off with that inflation news, which I think, fair to say, has put something of a spring in the step of UK investors, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, because it wasn't expected. Um, I, to be honest with you, I think a lot of analysts and commentators were being a bit cautious because we've been caught out, and I'm going to hold my hands up here. You know, We expected that inflation was going to come down last month a little bit, and it didn't. It got stuck. And I think a lot of people were then saying, you know, oh, yeah, I made a mistake. So there was an awful lot of caution associated with these figures. And I think a lot of people also see that maybe inflation here has been playing catch up a little bit. So we saw um, the CPI headline rate down to 7.9%. That's from 8.7%. So that's over the 12 months to June. But the last time it was under 8% was March 2022, so over a year. So this is a big deal. Poor inflation, of course, when you strip out all the volatile stuff, food and energy, the stuff that goes up and down a lot, that came in at 6.9%. Now, that was also down from 7.1%, but you can see the difference in movements there, which is really making people concerned about the stickiness, about how wage hikes have sort of filtered through. We've we've seen that sort of period of time when people have been asking their employers for more money, their employers have been giving them more money, but then having to put prices up and that's that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So there is concern. And off the back of the uh, wage figures this time last week, the expectation was that UK interest rates were going to have to be hiked higher and further than we had been expecting. But it was really interesting because as soon as the um, numbers came out uh, about inflation this morning, I was uh, keeping an eye on where markets expected rates to go. And they had been factoring in the expectation that there'd be a half a percentage point hike come August, sort of 50-50 split there. And immediately after these numbers, 
it is sort of whipped around and now markets are expecting that we'll only see a quarter percentage point hike and rates now expected to top off at 5.75%, whereas just days ago, there'd been real fears that, you know, we could see 7%. Um, there is sort of a, a little bit of bad news tucked in with the good news, which seems to be happening all the time at the moment. And that is that the value of the pound against the dollar um, came off some of the recent highs. And, and that is an issue because we buy so much stuff from abroad. And if the pound is strong, then that in itself helps cool inflation because that pound goes further. And the same time, uh, the good news bit, of course, is for all those people thinking that they've got just a few months out from having to change their fixed mortgage rates and expecting a huge hike. It's sort of reignited the debate about what is best to do. Um, always best to be proactive. If you lock in a number now, six months out, that's when you can do it. If rates do come down, then you can go with the lower one. But if they go up, at least you are protected. Um, so housing clearly has been uh, a huge issue in, in all of this, um, with people really concerned that what, this is going to be sort of the next thing in the cost of living crisis. But the first thing in the cost of living crisis was, of course, the price of the petrol pump. And that has been a huge thing which has helped bring inflation down this time. And also, we saw food prices. Now, food inflation isn't coming down, but it is easing off. So it went to 17.3% from 18.3%. And what I was really interested to see is that um, these figures, obviously, were from the Office for National Statistics, but there are a whole load of figures out there at the moment that we're looking at. And one set it comes from Kantar World Panel, particularly focusing on food. And they said that we'd seen the fourth decline in a row um, in the four weeks to June the July the 6th, it was, and that they'd seen the steepest decline since March. But something else that they were picking out, which was really interesting, is that we are getting incredibly savvy with how we shop. So we started trading down, switching to brands. Now we're looking for promotions and promotions now account for over 25% of total market spend. And we've had Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Morrison's, particularly Sainsbury's and Tesco's really fighting to be market leaders here when it comes to price. And Tesco had their Tesco price, their club card prices. Sainsbury's have introduced nectar prices. And off the back of that, Sainsbury's rate of sales growth actually overtook Tesco in the last four weeks that Kantar was looking at. So looking at these inflation figures today, clearly there is an awful lot of good news in there. But I'm going to leave you with the bad news because I can't do good news at the moment, it seems. There is concern now about food prices once again because uh, Russia, of course, withdrew from a UN grain deal uh, and also bombed ports in Ukraine, grain ports, um, after announcing that formally it was going to withdraw from that deal. And we have seen commodity prices for corn, wheat and soybeans up in the last few days. But that wave of optimism, not only could you see it immediately in terms of interest rate probability, the market expectation, but also on markets themselves, Dan. That's right. I mean, we, we you know, as we're recording this on Wednesday, stock markets are going crazy. I mean, and this is all down to 
a change in the interest rate expectation. So um, the idea is you know, falling inflation, you know, the Bank of England's got less of an argument to keep putting up rates. That's the, that's the theory. And therefore, um, stock market is all about anticipating what will happen next. So we've seen a really big jump in companies that are related to interest rates. So for example, we've had house builders up, some of them are up more than 10% on the day, um, like Chris Nicholson. So higher interest rates um, have been sort of troubling the property market. But the idea is if if the, if interest rates have only got a little bit more to go now rather than a lot more, um, maybe we've seen the worst. And so investors sort of sniffing around for bargains amongst house builders. Similar argument with commercial property, names like Dermot London up more than 10%, Land Securities up 8%. We've also got consumer stocks. Uh, you know, the idea is if if the end is almost in sight for for rate rises, is that better visibility for consumers? They can understand what's going on and perhaps budget a bit better. So you've seen names like Wizz Air, Curry's, um, the Harvestrona, Mitchells and Putler. They've all been in demand, and so all of this is is you know, giving a bit of a sort of a nice tailwind for UK stocks, and that's good because the UK market's been in the doldrums this year. We've seen the FTSE 250 of mid-cap stocks, and that's up 3.4%. That's its best day since February. The FTSE 100 is up nearly 2% on the day as well. So all, all this is really, really positive. But just remember that inflation is still way above the Bank of England's 2% target. So interest rate rises are unlikely to have peaked now. We might still have some more to come. But the thing that investors like is the idea that they might not be as high as previously expected. Yeah, and... I know a lot of people now are waiting to see whether or not this change in expectation filters through to the mortgage market because we see it happening as soon as there are expectation increases that we see increases in mortgage rates. Of course, what doesn't happen, tend to happen, is that we see the same thing happening with savings rates and that the government's been having a really long look at this and there was some pretty spiky comments from Harriet Baldwin, who chairs the Treasury Select Committee a couple of days ago, saying the time for weak excuses is over. I mean, that's pretty strong words when um, a member of the Treasury Select Committee is talking about lenders not passing on savings rates, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you've got... So Lloyd's um, kickstarts the UK banking sector reporting season next week. Um, Now, if you've got banks under pressure from the regulator and from politicians to speed up the passing of higher rates onto savers instead of just rushing just to jack up the lending rates. Now, there's a risk there that profits might not grow as fast as previously expected if the banks are forced to to be more generous. I say more generous, they should be forced to be more fair is the word to describe it. Laura's not with us, um, but she has crunched some numbers for us today. And over the past year, the average saver with £1,000 in an easy access account will find that it is now worth just £938 in real terms, having got an average of 1.18% interest over the period. Now, you know, top rate easy access accounts would have paid much more, which just demonstrates the need to shop around, but nowhere near the current inflation rate, even as it has fallen today. And based on the almost two trillion that Brits have in savings accounts, it does mean that the nation's savings could have collectively lost as much as £113 billion over the last year in real terms. 
Now, we were talking about fixed rate mortgage. The average two-year fixed rate mortgage has an interest rate of 6.78% as we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. A typical easy access savings account has an interest rate of 2.62 according to the Financial Information Service Money Facts. But the Bank of England, as we know, has lifted rates to 5%. So, yeah, shop around. And you're absolutely right uh, when you talk about the impact that this is having not only on UK banks, but we're seeing a similar picture in the United States as well. Oh, we've just had like all the big US banks reporting and blimey, are they doing well? Three of the largest US banks have recorded such a big rise in profits. And it's all down to because they're able to charge more for loans because interest rates have gone up. So JP Morgan says um, the second quarter net income jumped by 67% year on year to $14.5 billion. Now, that's amazing if you consider that analysts were expecting less than $12 billion. So you know, 12, that's $2.5 billion extra um, net income. I mean, that just shows, you know, this is their total sweet spot. Citigroup, Wells Fargo have also increased their own net interest income targets for the year. Um, yeah, and, and I think this is they're all doing really well. And this is quite interesting, even because there's worries about sort of loan defaults, particularly in commercial real estate. But the whole sector still seems to be doing quite well. Bank of America has been doing well, and, and that's actually been helped by its bonds, commodities and currency trading arms. So that helped the company beat profits uh, expectations as well. So um, all in all, generally, they've had they had a really good time. But, you know, I'm sure in the UK, if the regulator and politicians have sort of, you know, got their eye on, you know, wow, these, these companies are making ridiculous amounts of money when everyone else is having a tough time. I would have thought the same thing will apply to the US as well. You can't go on boom times forever. And I think, you know, what they what they're expecting is and what they've seen before in these situations is when when rates are sort of jumped up, competition becomes much more intense in the banking sector and uh, so whilst they they're coming out with really good stuff now, perhaps don't expect it to be like this, you know, going into next year. Now, we're going to stick with markets for a little bit and we're going to stick with what's going on in the United States as well because I I don't think you can have escaped the fact that um, not only are Hollywood writers on strike, but last week actors joined them on strike. They um, left uh, red carpet premieres. They've not been on talk shows. Um, they, they've pulled out a production of a lot of films and they have been picketing outside studios. It's the first time that both unions have been on strike since 1960s. And that is when... Um, SAG-AFTRA was led by one, Ronald Reagan. Marilyn Monroe is on the screen. But it's really interesting because a lot of the issues that they were fighting over back then are the same as the issues that they're fighting about now. And it's about a share of residuals because back then things were changing. So films that had just been played on the big screen were being repeated on television and actors and writers and filmmakers they wanted to share in those repeat fees. And now we've seen another shift, of course, where we're seeing people consuming more and more and more on streaming channels. And that's raised the question, how much of those residuals, what percentage should people be paid? There is also an issue of AI in terms of how it might be used, um, how it, it could take somebody's image and use it without paying them, how it could create scripts 
so many um, things in there, but that is quite a thorny issue. I think it's it's going to be quite difficult um, to deal with. But of course, all of that means that investors are looking at the potential economic impact that a lengthy strike could have. So uh, we've certainly seen lots of um, uh, studios having to stop filming. Um, Post-production work isn't happening. And if you are a, a shares magazine reader, uh, then do take a look at this week's mag because we've got a column in there. And if you want to see some of the numbers in black and white, it'll lay it out for you. But just taking a look at some of the film stocks, Paramount down 6% today, Disney down 4.6%, Warner Brothers Discovery down 3%. That is compared with where they were on the day before these um, actors went out on strike. Um, what is really interesting, though, is that the picture's not the same when you switch and take a look at Netflix, Apple and Amazon. All, of course, have streaming services. But for a variety of reasons, um, they aren't seeing shares fall in quite the same way. And I, I think a lot of that is down to the fact that at the minute there is maybe an expectation that things could be resolved quite quickly. And certainly Amazon and Apple have spent an awful lot of cash investing on sporting, live sporting uh, events, which obviously is not impacted by this. And Netflix has this huge production unit um, with filming all around the globe. And a lot of those are not impacted. And they've also got you know huge amounts of popular material from places like South Korea. But if you are an investor, it is also worth noting that it is not just the United States being impacted here or the big US studios, because filming of the new um, live action movie of How to Train Your Dragon which was supposed to be starting at Titanic Studios in Belfast. That has been shut down. And of course, you know, lots of freelancers relying on the paycheck won't get paid. We've got Zoo Digital, which is a Sheffield-based company, also has an office in Los Angeles. Um, it's a London-listed company, and it saw shares drop considerably last week because of a double whammy. You've got the actor and writer strike impacting future work and also... It is being cut, hit by cuts already um, that some of the streaming giants are making to the amount of stuff that they are producing. And we're talking about the cost anticipated to be in billions, um, You know, not just the obvious, as I say, in California. Uh, they're talking about everything potentially being impacted from estate agents to, to dry cleaners. And here, the focus must be on things like bars, restaurants and shops, that those establishments that rely on cinema footfall because if this goes on for months it could impact the slate of films um, coming to our screens and we are just at that point when we are seeing cinemas really slowly beginning to turn things around a little bit though you know with the likes of the latest Mission Impossible film and the latest Indiana Jones films that they haven't quite made um, the, the box office totals that um, some people had been expecting. But uh, it, I think we're recording this on Wednesday and Netflix um, reports its earnings later on today. And, and I can't imagine that they will get away with not talking about these strikes, Dan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's if you think that these streaming platforms, they rely on new releases to try and bring in more customers. 
um, you know, just look at the cinema industry in a whole. It's always people say it's only ever as good as a release schedule. Well, you know, the releases look fine and busy this year, but these 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 sort of impacts, these strikes now will hurt in a year's time. So next summer, you've got a whole industry that is uh, has a knock-ons to other industries as well. Like you know, there, there's the service industry, all these sort of um, camera and audio companies that work for it. Of course, you think about when you go to the cinema, you might go and have a meal. So restaurants that are located near cinemas could be affected as well. So um, so you might just think, okay, it's just just a load of actors striking. This this actually has pretty big knock-on effects to multiple industries. And um, the longer these strikes go on for, the, the worse that economic impact will be. But like I say, you know, we've, we, by the time you, you hear the show, you'll you'll know what Netflix has, has been talking about. Well worth looking in there to see if they're commenting on um, sort of on you know the productions being affected but um danny and nora will talk about some of these big names next week um but actually you know if you've had your money in u.s tech stocks or even sort of tech funds this year you should have made some decent gains but however if you haven't been in these areas then performance might have disappointed now we talked at the start about how uk stocks are sort of bouncing uh, as we record this podcast but year to date they haven't really done too much so I think lots of investors are sort of scratching their heads, wondering why markets have been so skewed to just a handful of stocks. So to make sense of this and to shed some light on where he's seeing the best opportunities, let's now bring on Joe Baumfreund, manager of the AVI Global Trust. So, Joe, it's been a bit of an odd year. I know that we've had some of the big US stocks have done very well. Obviously, that's helped the Nasdaq to you know a near 40% gain. In Japan, the Nikkei's up. 26 percent um european shares are about 12 percent but but actually uk stocks have done very little and hong kong's down so i mean i think if you perhaps if we look at us performance it's just really a handful of names driving um those sort of big returns i mean what, what do you make of markets overall this year so far well markets have been um pretty challenging for the best part of this year in fact for a year and a half now and all of that makes sense when you consider the fact that most central banks around the world have been on a tightening path, raising interest rates quite aggressively. And that has meant that all risk assets have come under pressure uh, and repricing pressure from, from higher interest rates, be about equities um, and bonds. So the, the general environment has been less conducive to the kind of environment we all got used to in the past uh, 10, 12 years, when interest rates were very low and stock markets appeared to go up uh, forever. Within the context of the US, clearly there's been excitement around artificial intelligence. And that has meant that a handful of, of companies have gone up as investors have gotten extremely excited about uh, about this, this new fee. And that has extended to other tech-related names, as you indicated in your question. I think that's not a particularly healthy environment uh, to have such strong market performance driven by such a small handful of companies. On a more positive note, though, what I would say is that in the past few weeks, we've started to see some more breadth creeping into the stock market performance. And we've started seeing in the US, for example, um, companies below those magnificent seven tech stocks um, start to perform quite, quite strongly as well. And that is a more healthy environment, and it coincides with the period of time in which we've started to see, both in the US and uh, yesterday in the UK, for example, better data 
inflation, suggesting perhaps um, a nearing of the the end of the interest rate tightening cycle. So, you know, I don't think it, it's healthy for markets to be driven by a handful of stocks. But I think on a positive note, we are seeing that trend right across the more companies. So, so obviously with your, your product, AVI Global Trust, it's up about 5% this year. Um, I guess if you if you analyze that, uh, you're looking at you know, just a bit ahead of what someone might expect from um, equities looking back at history. But are you happy with that performance? I mean, obviously, alone that look that looks all right. But I guess if you compare that to you know some of the sort of the much bigger figures, if you'd had a sort of a tracker for the Nasdaq index, are you a bit disappointed with it? Well, we're rarely happy, and now we always want to deliver more for our shareholders. But in the context of um, what we've seen across broad equity markets this year, and our performance is is respectable. It's in line with returns from from our benchmark, and and more fundamentally, it's also in line with our expectations for this kind of environment. And by that, I mean in an environment in which most equity markets are struggling apart from a handful of stocks, when we look at our, our universe, we look at our opportunity set, and we look at valuations, um, we, we tend to see in these kind of environments uh, discounts to net asset value, which is a key focus of what ABI Global Trust does. They tend to widen, uh, and that has been the case today. Uh, and and so um, our performance is caused with our expectations. We're confident, though, that we're building a portfolio of extremely high quality on very attractive valuations. And as markets settle down, as confidence starts to come back, hopefully in the coming months, we would expect a strong tailwind from not only a re-rating in share prices, but also narrowing of discounts, which, as we've seen numerous times in the past, be a powerful boost to our returns. So I know that you've got quite big exposure to Japan. Um, obviously, you look at the, you know, the Nikkei index is, is done very well, up twenty six percent this year. But what, what is it? Why haven't you sort of benefited from this sort of this surge in interest in Japanese stocks? Or well, we have benefited. We've got twenty two percent of ABI Global's portfolios invested there, and it's been a a source of, of good returns and good contribution to returns on board of trust. And the thing to remember about Japan, of course, is that those, those strong returns that you mentioned are in global currency terms, and the yen has, has weighed heavily, the yen weakness, I should say, has weighed heavily on returns, particularly for sterling investors. The pound has been strong and the yen has been weak. Um, but we have got, we have participated, and certainly in local currency terms, the companies have done well. I should say, though, that we tend to be focused more on smaller cap Japanese names, and the big um, advances in Japanese index have been driven primarily by large cap names. The good thing is that, uh, from our perspective, that um, there is more excitement about Japan. It is a big exposure for our, for our local trust. And we would expect that as that excitement is sustained and capital continues to flow into the Japanese stock market, really for the first time in, in many years, this enthusiasm about Japan, we would expect that to trickle down to uh, smaller company names, which are far more uh, attractively priced than their larger cap is. You've also got a stake in Pershing Square, Bill Ackman's investment mm. company. Um, now, over the years, it's it's had pockets of um, or periods where it's done incredibly well, and that's been helped through sort of yeah, financial engineering rather than it's just simply picked the right stocks. Um, at the moment, that that sort of share price seems to be sort of slightly stuck in the mud. What, 
what is it about Pershing Square that you like and, and you know what would it take for that share price to get moving again? Yeah, well, Pershing Square is is um, an investment trust effectively. It, it has a portfolio of a handful of uh, mostly US listed large cap names, but also a big stake in Universal Music Group, uh, which is a company we think is is extremely attractive and undervalued. Um, so taking the equity portfolio there, um, we think buying into Pershing Square or a discount for around 35 to 36% is a fantastic way to get exposure to some really world-class businesses. And it's very transparent, very easy to value. Uh, and the discount in our minds is, is far too low. Combined with that, what Pershing Square has also been doing very successfully, actually, over the last three or four years, it is um, from time to time using derivatives to get exposure to asymmetric uh, return situations. Uh, that means risking small amounts of capital for the possibility of making huge outsized returns many, many times the amount of the initial outlay. And um, they've, they've done that very successfully, as I say, over the last few years, but also um, in a way that risks a very small amount of capital should that go wrong. And in the past, where they have had periods of poor performance, it's been down to taking big outside bets um, negative bets, short positions in individual stocks that have gone wrong, and they have been very costly. And I think they've learned the lessons from that by focusing more on these um, more asymmetric sources of return. So we think um, you know it's a fantastic way, as I say, to get exposure to a, a great connection of businesses, and at the same time on a discount that really you can't find anywhere else in the investment trust sector. And I think um, what will change the share price? Well, performance of those underlying companies obviously will help. Uh, the company is doing a fair bit in terms of buying back its shares to help narrow the discount, and it's doing a fair amount of emotional work and marketing to get its story out there. And you know, I think if they continue to do that and the stars align with the underlying um, stock market performance, then we could see quite strong performance. And just finally, where else are you seeing sort of really good opportunities at the moment? Well, the thing about this this kind of market environment is that it is throwing up opportunities across the board for us. So uh, that includes Japan, as we mentioned, includes the UK best and trust market, but also in parts of Asia, some US markets, in some emerging markets, we are seeing um, very attractive valuations, situations of companies trading at big discounts where we think the true value is. And more encouragingly, um, situations where management or other investors are pushing the company, working working with the company to unlock unlock a lot of that value and create kind of idiosyncratic terms that we try to generate. So obviously you, you, you need to be quite patient with quite a lot of your holdings then, um, just waiting for these catalysts sort of play out. What, I mean, it, do, do you ever sort of find that you get some of your shareholders are saying you're just, you're, you're being, you're being too patient, you know, um, you can't wait around forever for things to, to sort of re-rate. Well, part of the investment philosophy here is to focus and to ensure that we're buying good quality businesses. And the reason for that is that sometimes we do have to be patient to wait for the catalyst, for that discount to narrow. But if we own businesses that are growing their profits year in, year out, it allows us to be more 
patient because the value of that investment is going up in and of itself, regardless of whether the discount is narrowing or wide. Uh, and that's why the, we're not buying a pound of assets, say, of 70 pence in the hope that that 70 pence becomes a pound. We're buying a pound of assets in the hope that in five years' time, say, that pound is worth two pounds and the gap in the share price and that value is narrowed. Um, in terms of what we can do to, to narrow, the, narrow the discount, bring that catalyst into play, it depends upon the situation. So in some situations, we can be quite explicitly activist ourselves. In Japan, for example, um, amongst other closer funds, we can be quite public and push boards and management teams to do more. In other situations, um, Bershing Square or other family-controlled holding companies where there's a limit of the influence that we can have, we have to be more patient, rely on the underlying assets to appreciate in value, but also nevertheless continue to engage with management, make suggestions, uh, make some arguments to them and hope that they do the right thing for shareholders. Well, Joe, thank you very much. That's perfect. Thanks for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that was Joe Bauenfreund from AVI Global Trust. Let's bring in Tom Selby now. He's AJ Bell's Head of Retirement Policy. Tom's back with us for another week to digest some of those huge changes the Chancellor is looking to make in the world of pensions. Now, if you want more details of the plans to get largest defined contribution schemes to put 5% of their assets in unlisted UK equities, and you didn't catch last week's podcast, please do go back and listen. Tom did some really good observations on that show. But as for this week, rather than addressing Jeremy Hunt's claims about higher pension returns, there's some news around smaller pots which could affect investors too. Now, Tom, tell us what's going on. Thanks for that, Dan. Yes, so we had this barrage of pensions announcements, as you said, last week, and the primary driver for a lot of those announcements was, as you say, to get more money invested in higher risk investments in UK PLC with the Chancellor trying to push for long-term growth in the economy. And one of those announcements was around small pension pots. pots. So it's all about trying to solve the problem of people building up lots of different small pension pots as they move through their career. So every time you get a job now, potentially through as a result of automatic enrollment, you might build up another pension pot and then you move on. You might not move it with you. And as a result, that pension pot risk becoming lost. And it's more difficult for you to engage with that money. You might not get the best value for money either. So official estimates suggest, suggest there's could be over £26 billion of pension money that's deemed lost. And the government clearly isn't happy about this and so it wants to develop what's known as an automatic transfer system for an estimate estimated 14 million pension pots worth less than 1000 pounds now the dwp reckons the total assets of these small pots is about 4 billion pounds so in the the context of about two and a half trillion pounds of pension money it's not huge but from the chances perspective every little helps and what he wants to do is try and corral some of that money he wants it to be automatically transferred into these consolidator schemes and then he's hoping that those consolidator schemes will invest more money in uk plc and so it all drives back to that growth agenda so the the reason the government's focusing on small pots is that and particularly pots worth less than a thousand pounds is that automatically transferring someone's pension without getting their permission first comes with some real risks so it's possible for example that someone might have their retirement pot moved to a scheme with 
higher charges or worse investment performance or both. So while it's logical to look at ways to increase scale and efficiency in the pension system, the government's going to need to make sure that protecting consumers is the number one priority. So we don't we don't have a specific timeline for this. The government said it wants to create this automatic transfer. So there's a lot of work to do in building these consolidator schemes that members would be moved into. Uh, and the government's also got the challenge of making sure that members are, are sufficiently protected so they don't end up losing out significantly as a, as a result of these changes. So there was a barrage of announcements, Tom, mm. but the yeah. burning question is, have they given up on the pensions dashboard? No, no, they haven't. So the, this idea of pensions dashboards is, is to allow people to see all of their retirement pots in one place online. And the thinking behind that is that it will make it easier for people to find some of these lost pots. And of course, these reforms are only dealing with sub £1,000 pension pots. So if you've got pots from other jobs where there were more than £1,000, then they won't be automatically transferred as part of this. And so those pensions dashboard reforms remain really important and important engagement tool to allow people to, to, to find all their different pensions and hopefully consolidate them perhaps with a single provider so it's easier to manage and they could potentially benefit from, from lower charges as well. So pension dashboards still on the agenda, but they have been pushed back. So this was announced um, a couple of a couple of months ago, so we were supposed to be seeing the first pension schemes connecting to the pension dashboards this year, and we were hoping to see versions of dashboards available in the next year or two. The government's now pushed that back beyond the general election. I think there's a general feeling that it's quite a, a difficult uh, tech project for the government to undertake. Obviously, governments don't always have the biggest, the best track record when it comes to um, when it comes to big tech. Projects. I think there was a fear that if they tried to do it too quickly, that things might go on go wrong. So the government says it remains committed to its pensions dashboards, but we're not going to see them until after the general election. And of course, after the general election, we may have a different party in power that may have different priorities. So it's been been kicked into the long grass for now, and it'll be one we'll, we'll need to keep an eye on because clearly we need to address the fact that people still struggle to find all their old pensions. And if you can't find them, then it's very difficult for people to get value for money when their money's scattered all over the place. So thanks, Tom. We were talking about Hollywood earlier. Cinemas are probably high on the list of things that parents are thinking about ways to keep their kids entertained during the summer. Um, now, it's a big week uh, coming ahead. We've got the schools breaking up. Um, and so parents are having to decide what to do. And we've got big releases ahead. Uh, there's Barbie, there's Oppenheimer, and you know Tom pretty guess which one you'll be going to <laughs> uh, are you wearing I'm, it I'm, I'm, I'm lining both up i'm lining both up uh i think they both look like interesting interesting but i mean the hype around barbie has been incredible um it's it, it it doesn't feel like the kind of film that i would normally gravitate towards but the, the combination of the hype and the, and the cast has got me intrigued so i will be i will be watching both in the coming weeks it's been a masterclass in marketing hasn't yeah. it barbie i mean I don't know anybody that doesn't know that this film is coming out and also, like you, that isn't sort of now intrigued and potentially thinking that, that they want a Barbenheimer double bill. I mean, that, that's become the, the word of the season, hasn't it? And um, just figuring out which order to do them in. Do you go with the bit of froth first and then, you know, you have the sort of heavy serious stuff or do you go with the serious first and then end up with the froth dan oh i don't know I, but i think one of the one of the things for you know certainly for as a parent 
um, I guess you'll be looking at is the total cost of it. You know, cinema is, you know, whilst in our minds we're thinking it's cheap, but actually, you know, you're now sort of pushing £10 in certain parts of the countries to go there. And of course, keeping an eye on costs is, is very important. There's some new data out that says the cost of childcare through the summer holidays is sort of, it's approaching a thousand pounds. So you're looking at you know six weeks to keep your your kids busy. You know, total total cost could be nine hundred and forty three pounds. Now of course this this varies depending on on where you are in the country. If you're in inner London, you you potentially looking at childcare costs of one hundred and seventy seven pounds a week. Um, if you're in Scotland, one hundred and fifty seven pounds, and in Wales, one hundred and sixty eight pounds. But um, it's it's quite tough on on parents here. I mean, essentially, if you haven't got sort of family or friends who can help look after your children, um, you know, you, you've only got a few options here. You can either you have to take time off work, uh, um, you pay for childcare, you, or you could pay for a, a holiday club. But yeah, you know, it, it it's very tricky. And you know, I think that people sort of looking to government saying, you know, it'd be great if we can have some support here. What you know, what are we meant to be doing? Now, the government does offer parents to some three to five year olds 33 hours of childcare a week, but um, that only applies during term time. So, you know, I, m both my kids are now at secondary school. So I'm, I'm, I guess they're at the age where the, perhaps they can keep themselves busy. You don't have to worry about it. But if you've got, you know, particularly, you know, particularly got children under under 11, you, you're thinking, okay, I, I can't, if I've got to go to work, I can't leave them on the house on their own. What do you do? I know, obviously, Danny, you've been, you've been through this as well. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's a tough one. What, I don't know what we can suggest as a sort of the perfect solution, really. I used to draw up a spreadsheet. I mean, Laura Souter would be proud of me because I would have a spreadsheet for every single day where the kids were going to be, who was responsible for them. And my husband and I would basically take separate weeks off in order to be able to, to cover the cost because we couldn't afford to take a couple of weeks off together over the summer holidays because then that meant that we were a couple of weeks short of childcare. And it is hugely expensive. There are a lot of free things that you can do, particularly if you are eligible. I know certainly where I am in Kirklees, there's a whole load of sort of sporting stuff that people can do. Um, but but it is really hard. I mean, we're both lucky now. I'm at a point where I can literally, you know, chuck in a few blue ribbons through the bedroom door and close it again and just leave them to it. But it is hugely expensive. And when you factor in as well that people who get free school meals they do get extra vouchers over the summer, but it's an awful lot of additional pressure for people. I mean, there are, I guess, there's various options you can do. What one is obviously flexible working, so you know employees have the right to ask for it. Um, and obviously, you could potentially change your hours if if that's possible. It might be that you could, you know, if you've got a partner who's working during the day, perhaps you could do some hours in the evening uh, when they're back home. Uh, obviously, there's unpaid leave. There's universal child, uh, universal credit childcare funding. So, working families with this benefit can claim up to nine hundred fifty-one pounds a month for one child, or one thousand six hundred thirty for two or more. Um, obviously, there there are there are these holiday activities. Maybe you could look around in the community to see if there's something that's free. Uh, quite often, that you, you do have these things, but the downside of that is it may only be a couple of hours in the days. It's not the perfect solution. Um, parents who are under 20 in England can, and if there is a school or sixth form college, they can claim weekly payments under the care to learn scheme. But, but otherwise, unfortunately, yes, it, it is about, um, 
you know, thinking, what can we do? Maybe, maybe you can get some friends, and you, you could take some of some of the you know, your child's friends for a, a day or two, and uh, and you could swap with it. You know, likewise, uh, you, their friends' parents could do the same. But yeah, very, very, very tough one indeed. It is tough. We used to do that with um, some of our parent friends. We used to sort of swap, so we'd have a couple of the kids, a couple of days, and a couple of kids other days. Uh, I've already told Laura that she should ask Tom to step in over the summer holidays for um, her daughter, and I'm sure you'd be quite up for that, Tom. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and on that note, that is it for this week. Next week, I'll be chatting to Chris Tennant, Portfolio Manager of Fidelity Emerging Markets, about where he sees potential. Latin America is likely to feature quite heavily in that chat. Now, we'll also have the latest market news for this latest uh, corporate earnings season. And, and also next week will be our last podcast until after the summer. So make sure you don't miss it. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.